All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? And how do you get it? I'm your host, Jeff Coulard. Welcome to the show. A realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship itself. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. Okay, welcome to another episode of Powerful. I'm your host, Jeff Coulard, and this is one of those conversations that I've been waiting for for actually quite a while. It's someone that I've had a lot of these types of conversations with in the past, but usually it's been in a truck driving out of the uh, the base camp program that we worked at together or sitting in an airplane late at night flying from back from somewhere where we had done some work or attended a training together. And these conversations never failed to dive into basically the fundamentals of psychology and therapy and the helping profession at large and more broadly life and leadership and what it means to be human. So, you know, we may not cover all of that territory today, but we're definitely going to hit on some of it. And so I'm excited to introduce you to today's guest. He's a psychologist, a therapist, a father, a husband, and one of my good friends, Kelly Waters Radcliffe. So Kelly, welcome to the show and thank you for carving some time out of your undoubtedly busy schedule uh, to sit down and talk with me on a Monday night. Thank you. Um, it is busy, but this is a pleasure and I anticipated this as well. Yeah. Awesome. Well, why don't you fill us in a little bit on what it is you're up to these days when people ask you, Hey Kelly, what do you do? And what, what do you tell them? And how did you get here? Maybe a little bit of the backstory, maybe the highlights of kind of your journey as a therapist oh, or, some dad, or whatever. Um, holy cow. Um, well, the highlights are always for me what's happening right now. So I'll, I'll stick with right now and then see what happens uh, in the past. I'm a psychologist, so that's how I think sometimes. Um, right now I'm working at Mount Royal College, or now university, providing some contract work to the student body there, which is a, a fantastic experience, actually. It's a really lovely culture and um, an incredibly diverse student body. So I feel, I feel that I'm learning quite a bit just from the people I'm, I'm getting a chance to speak with. Um, but I'm also really involved with something called Redefined, which is a nonprofit happening in Calgary, um, operating currently out of uh, Bowness, which ha is in the process of retooling its, um, its method of delivery uh, from one thing to another. Let me just back up a little bit. Um, maybe one day you'll get a chance to speak with Liz on the podcast. She will, she is a very eloquent person and a fascinating, she has a fascinating story, but her hope is to work with um, street involved troubled youth. Um, just, you know, uh, add your words to that. We all know who those people are um, and, uh, and the services that are required to, to support them. Um, unfortunately, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of insight and forethought and money to to get programs up and running. And we, we are from one of those programs. She has a really innovative way of attending to the needs of the youth, which is to prioritize their points of view, to prioritize their needs, and to give them a performance space for the practice of 
uh, preferred identity to use some of the jargon. So her um, previous iteration was to create a commercial kitchen in which youth would come and, uh, and actually create recipes, gather um, resources, um, implement uh, cooking skills, market, sell, and they would do a lot of uh, catering. So there was a lot of interface with the community. Now, um, it was meaningful to many people that passed through there because they got a chance to experience more of themselves than the diagnoses and the judgments that normally attend to troubled youth. This was obviously something that really related or resonated with me as a therapist from Enviros for, for many years, and, and you as well, I'm sure, um, because it spoke to the question question that was posed to me early in my career by uh, a supervisor who was listening to me sort of ramble in a worried fashion about the client I was uh, seeing and trying to give my information uh, about so I could get some advice. And she said, well, um, who else is this person? And that question stuck with me forever, actually. It's amazing how, at least in my career, just so very few things stuck that might have something to do with my own brain but how how few actual principles really worm their way into inform who i am today in any case uh liz seems in her work with redefined really is about asking who else are they and making room for that to happen so i naturally want to be on board with that and I'm, i've got a small piece of uh, of some development that she's doing right now and hopefully a much larger role and i also have some private practice happening in calgary can we hit the pause button because yeah. I think that we'll end up unpacking some of your journey through psychology by exploring some of these topics that as Absolutely. you bring them up. And so that that question that you were asked early in your career by a supervisor, who else is this person? And like that's a pretty fundamental question because mm-hmm. a lot of psychology. So part of what I wanted I was hoping to talk about today was some of the assumptions that are underlie. The, you know, the body of work that is psychology, because I think it informs a lot of other things. It informs social work, it informs education, it informs parenting to some degree, um, our beliefs about people and about problems. And that question, who else is this person or who else could this person be? You know, that that territory suggests that maybe we're not seeing a whole person when they come to us with a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, no. can, can we dig into that a little bit? Like what is, yes. let's, let's talk about problems. Like why why do people seek therapy? How do we identify problems? And what's the problem with how we view human problems of the mind oh. of, of, you know, take your pick of any of those questions. If one of them resonates with you, feel free to sure. take away. Um, they all interest me, as you know, from all of those truck rides. Um, you know, I'm going to answer one or many of those questions in a sideways fashion by answering none of them uh, currently. Um, I remember a few years ago, as I was sort of struggling to think, well, number one, what is therapy? And also, what do I, how do I account for what I'm doing, given what I believe about therapy? I was doing some reading in art, actually. Um, and this one particular artist, amongst many, is a Canadian artist named uh, Christopher Pratt, who paints these like strangely surreal all oh, like sort of photorealistic uh, depictions of really banal landscapes, really frontal, really square, really dead on with no people, just um, very airbrushed looking. He would kill me if, if he heard me use the word airbrush, but just, you can't see brushstrokes. So real, we'll say. Um, and there was one painting that he, where he, he, he was painting an ocean, a very simple horizon, like not much detail going on, but he painted, he painted a frame within the painting of this view 
and it was it's jolting um, because nor- normally, and perhaps there are many artists who have played with this idea, but normally when you look at a painting, you, you're just looking, you're, you're not necessarily thinking this is a painting. You're looking at a point of view. And when he painted that frame around it, he said, you are looking at a painting. More, more than that, you're looking at my point of view. You're not just looking at a picture. And I found that really useful um, because, you know, often when I'm sitting with a client or a group or a family, um, I feel the strong urge to say the most asinine thing. But it's, I really feel it. And the thing I normally say after listening to a story from a client is, you know, it's not like a, it's not like there's a book that's written about this or <laughs> something like that. Like there is no book about your life. But of course, if you go to chapters or if you just go online, you'll find that there's billions of books. And the, the problem with all of these points of view is that they seldom, not that I've read them all, but books that I've read seldom acknowledge that all of them were points of view. And all of them are frames around a painting. Now, when you think about what an artist does, they're, they're not just absorbing molecules of reality and depicting it on a canvas, if, if they're doing the realistic thing. They are filtering it through their attention mechanism and all of their aesthetics, all of their own lived history, their interests, their technique, their point of view, and the purpose they're trying to bring across in the painting. So you, you're seeing the end result of all of those layers of subjectivity and reading a book about about psychology or self-help or emotions or any of the things that you're likely to see in a bookstore is like that we're reading through all of these things and not seeing the frame and i think you know to try to cinch some of this up to your your primary concern I, i think for if i'm to read this correctly for this podcast is that when we omit the frame or we erase the frame or we uh don't acknowledge the frame we are potentially subjecting the people that we work with to an illusion and also uh, subjecting them to the possibility for a form of violence. Now that might be a little bit jolting, um, but to impose our, let's just back up for a second. This is something we used to say at base camp. Why um, we took on the right, right use of power was this question that intervention, which is what we do in a treatment program or any, really any counseling what we do is inter interventions to intervene. We interject ourselves in someone's life. We impose ourselves, even in the most gentle, um, kind, thoughtful way. It's still an intervention, and therefore, it's an act of power or influence. And, bec- and if we are able to recognize that we we are providing a frame, we're imposing something on a on a person's life, whether it be um, a specific technique or a way of looking at something or a little bit of language because psychology generates lots of language, not just psychology, but while all of these helping, um, helping schools generate ways of talking about problems and, and uh, solutions and uh, personhood and identity and all of these things, all of these are imposing upon a client's own worldview. And because of that, we set up, we set up the necessity for clients to be kind of interpreters and to try to translate themselves into the framework of the person that's rendering care. That is a very vulnerable place to be, a place where a person kind of has to abandon or 
be rid of some part of themselves. So any any native uh, speaker um, trying to get themselves understood in a different language knows a piece of them kind of has to go missing. Now, when you, oh, there's this my kitty cat. Um, <laughs> she will be joining us for this conversation. Um, if you add on top of uh, the, the raw fact that we are intervening, we're introducing language, we're interpreting, hopefully not too much, but maybe that's really our gig. Um, we are creating uh, exercises, we're doing all of these interventions. If you layer into that, that helping systems occur within systems uh, 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 that in, into which a lot of money gets poured, there's political agendas, there is interdepartmental um, personalities, there is uh, administrativity, there's the burdens of, that, of the things that we inherit from our progenitors, all of these heirlooms that seem to hang around in programs. If you layer all of that in there, then you have a very high likelihood that we're going to just intervene because we've always done it this way, regardless of the person that we're um, working with, which is um, like ground zero for some pretty crappy practice, practice I've been involved with, practice that I thought was good practice, best practice, we'll call it, um, even when it was squarely turning the person away from me. Like I, I've been a client and I am a client uh, occasionally. I'm also a therapist. I've been in that position where I've had a very well-meaning, very caring person say just a, just a thing or two. And, and it's turned me right around to a place where I now know I have to be careful. Mm -hmm. And because the work that we do requires an opening, as the second we're getting people to just protect themselves from us, now, you know, that's a small act of violence, unintended. It's an outcome that we didn't intend. It's an impact we're making that is antithetical to the therapeutic, uh, therapeutic outcome that we're looking for. So through frames, I was just wanting to say that I think one of the best practices we can do is make that frame very apparent, in including not just the therapeutic frame like I do CBT or I, I have this certification um, for this particular type of work, but also who am I as a person? Not to center me in the work that I do, but to be there in the room. You know, just the other day, in fact, I was sitting with a, a person who had seen another therap therapist previously and uh, acknowledged that this was a good, a good therapist, but it just, there was something lifeless. There was something dead about it because this, the individual had sensed their therapist was just doing a technique in that she wasn't there. She wasn't there as a person. So it was like this raw invitation to be a person in the room while also, while also being the professional in the room, which is a difficult balance. Well, it's a difficult balance when we don't see clients as whole people in the room, right? We see them as problems to be solved or we see them as their anxiety or their depression or whatever it happened to bring them through through our door, um, depending on the program. So for you and I, it was addiction would be the thing, right? That was the mm -hmm. the, the, the experience or the label that had you had to have to get in access to the program. And then once, you know, young people and families were in the program, there was actually very little conversation about addiction per se, or drugs mm -hmm. and, and their use, right? We were, you know, trying to expand that version or vision of that person. Um, but that's something that I would say psychology is pretty firmly built on is this reductionism, like re mm -hmm. reducing people's behaviors to, to labels and pathologizing those labels, right? Like there's, I don't know how many different types of anxiety there is listed in the DSM these days. And for those that don't know what the DSM is, it's the kind of the Bible, the manual of diagnostics and statistics, I think of human behavior, right? So it's a big thick catalog that grows over time. And we could park that and talk about it probably for an entire hour on the, the politics mm -hmm. and the, the issues associated with that approach. But 
that seems like one of those assumption like foundations of the, of practice that we need to question and examine like what are these diagnoses and are they true right or like let's talk a little bit about that I'll, I'll park my other questions because i have a tendency to ask five in a row and then confuse my guests to be like what, what are you asking me jeff so um let's talk a little bit about seeing whole people right as opposed to just seeing the labels and then maybe being a whole person in the room or bringing some of yourself into your practice and what keeps people from doing that and how we can maybe approach that in a different way. I too have a parking lot and it's full of uh, vehicles ranging from a 2007 year old, uh, like year matrix to a Lamborghini to a Winnebago. There's many others uh, that often have to use my parking lot. So just tell me which vehicle you want. Got it. Um, let me just pull one of those questions up. You know, okay, so first I want to acknowledge, I think, I think I'd read a byline of one of, or a description of this podcast that said, you know, what's wrong with psychology today or something like that? Was there, was there one that said that? Probably, yeah. I thought, oh God, as soon as I open my mouth, I'm, there's someone, we're going to get a caller that says, you know what, Kelly, what's wrong with psychology is you. And uh, <laughs> that, could, that could be a past coworker, it could be a past client, and that person would be right. So undoubtedly, I'm also what's wrong with psychology. I hope that parts of me are also what's right with it. Um, oh, God, I just got down my own tailpipe there. <laughs> this also happens in those trucks. Let's get back. I'm just putting the rewind button on. Imagine that you're watching something clever by a Jim Carrey or Robin Williams playing a backwards, um, uh, a backwards theme. Okay, so I wanted to not be burdened with saying what's wrong with psychology. Um, I also really want to acknowledge, although I've had my words about the DSM, that it's, a, it's an attempt to wrap language around human experience. And it's, it's, a, it's an attempt to crystallize some language so we don't have to use, like, use so many words to describe a human experience. And, you know, also to give words to the inchoate realm of nonverbal experience. I, I've, I've known many people in my time who just were grateful to get a diagnosis because they say, finally, I, you know, it exists. I, those words help me make a perimeter around my experience. It's acknowledged. It's not, it's not, I'm not alone. All of that. Yeah. So I want to acknowledge that, that, that the diagnostic manual, so far as I understand, I don't know anybody who's actually participated in the creation of it, but it's a, it's a scientific effort to understand something and you kind of have to create a vocabulary around it. But that also has a frame. And the frame is, let's just all understand it's a language and it's a language decided by committee and increasingly is trying to be scientific about it. But um, when you're studying language categories that, gener that are generated by language with scientific tools, you, my sense is not on this is that you can start to get into some tricky areas trying to validate something that's not there or, I don't know if you were in this meeting a long time ago. I gave uh, a bunch of uh, staff equal portions of Lego of different sizes and shapes. Each one got the same pack, but everyone got different instructions. So every, to clarify, everybody in the room got the same packages of Legos. 
and I asked it privately uh, each person to uh, focus on one type of piece. So for one, it's like to use all the purple pieces for you, use all the squares, you use the things with four bumps, etc. And they all, and it just like make the, make the best thing you can make. And uh, they all did. And then the question after that was, can you go around and see what pieces are, see what the focus was of each person with their Lego? And it was usually pretty easy like you can see that's a purple one that has all the purples or this one just got to use every, every one of the pieces but in any case there was no one of those um little sculptures that was the lego they were all pieces they were all specific pieces seen through a certain set of priorities that were the best possible picture with those limited amounts of pieces and that's kind of the way that i see diagnosis we're trying to put together as many of the pieces though as we can but we can never use them all because to use them all is to absorb every detail of a person's life. Now I once, oh, uh, you know, here's me going around in circles again. I once had a teacher, uh, a pretty renowned person, a, a person who operates on a, on a, on a stage that's much bigger than anything I, I would ever have aspirations uh, to, to do. Uh, and he once was quite angry at this, um, at this notion that there are therapists out there who actually talk about the past. And he said, the past is the one thing you can do nothing about. There's nothing you can change about the past. And in my postmodern adult brain, I thought, of course, of course, there's something you can do about it. You can put the pieces together in different ways. You can remember other things. You can examine how different memories and different experiences reflected certain values. You can create new understandings out of many types of Lego because our past is much bigger than any one story that we have to define it. So diagnoses, small, narrow, single stories about things, um, which can be wielded in very sensitive hands. There are very good diagnostics, diagnostic practitioners out there. By the way, one of the models of um, the models that psychologists are asked to aspire to is this idea of the scientific practitioner, the person who consumes science and then renders therapy and is on top of scientific details. And I would contend that leaning too far into the science is to miss uh, the person again, mm -hmm. whereas what we had parked a car you know, a few minutes ago. So you wanted me to respond a little bit to the DSM. I have great compassion for the need for language where we all use it. Um, and, for, and it's the necessity of naming problems so you can start to generate remedies. But that, that language I've found to be insufficient to capture the real um, lived details of people's lives. Um, Maybe that's the piece that yeah. stands out for me the most is that, you know, anxiety, let's just pick on anxiety because it's probably one of the most sure. common disorders, um, disorders, things that people get diagnosed with in uh, when they access therapy, uh, certainly in the times of a global pandemic and all of the uncertainty that we're living with. I think baseline anxiety for all of us, myself included, is higher than maybe it, it was um, six mm -hmm. months ago. Um, but when we look at it from the like, why anxiety? Like, what is it? Why is someone anxious? What I find sometimes is with the DSM approach or just that narrowing viewpoint is, well, they have anxiety or they're anxious because they have anxiety. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, why do they have anxiety? Well, because they exhibit lots of anxiousness in there. And it's like, oh, you get into that very circular chicken and egg conversation very quickly, um, as opposed to seeing it as a response. And we could talk about responses as opposed to problems in, in, in a mm -hmm. bit, but I was maybe let's get circle back to your story a little bit. And you mentioned 
the the power of story and the power of reframing our stories and rearranging the bits of our stories to create new meanings. I know that you lean on narrative therapy as as, mm-hmm. a, as a practice, as like as part of your kind of toolkit mm-hmm. of practice. Um, why? What what is it about narrative therapy um, and the stories that of our lives that interests you and fascinates you and that you find useful in in your practice? Hmm. Um, I. It's a good question. And I wonder if my story is pretty similar to other people's stories about how they found their particular uh, modalities or their uh, ideological company, um, their buds, their community of thought. There, that's probably the best. Um, I found narrative therapy uh, outside of my education. I think that's where probably where it's mostly found. Although it's it's thirty years old, right? Twenty three, maybe forty years old. It's not new. There was a time when it was new, and you could only find it in like sort of like punk rock shows. You didn't know they were going to happen until you saw a poster outside the church. Now you you can just get online and find it. Back in the day, you didn't know unless you know somebody. I think narrative therapy was like that for a while, but now it's like everywhere. It's in every program, but um, it, it wasn't in my schooling. I found it uh, in. In my in a residency I took at a local agency, there were people there. there that was one of the most amazing experiences because there was a huge uh, variety of people um, to talk with, uh, students, fellow students. And those other students were circulating ideas that I hadn't in my program. So narrative therapy was one of them. And the reason I, it st- struck me wasn't I didn't learn it like I learned other things. Like here is long division, just take it in, do it, regurgitate it. It was a I got some company and some language that validated my own experience as a person. I have had experiences in, in my past where um, I've had uh, language used to disqualify me or to, to get me in a really tight box. And, and I found it really harmful. I found it amputating. It's a word that I, I use quite frequently. It's not, I'm not the only one who would use that. But I found it really disqualifying of huge parts of me. And uh, actually, when I got into my, my, my master's and got into my residencies and internships, uh, it was one of my most initial, initially scary things, which is how am, I going to, how am I going to understand the people across me with such a limited toolbox of words? And narrative therapy offered lots of ways. Um, it's, it's sort of like, it's, it's a bit hard to get to know, like holding an octopus. It's really sort of not a straightforward process. It's more like a spirit, and once you step into it, um, it becomes possible to be very curious about people and to be curious particularly about those neglected stories or those ones that don't get put front and center when you're involved in systems that are really relentless in asking you what the problem is. Um, so out of personal experience, I would have appreciated some more curiosity because I really needed language to help me understand a lot of territory that I didn't have words for. Uh, and that's that language has helped me do, I hope, similar things to the people that I serve. I know that my only real, well, no, I say there's only two things that I can provide a client. One would be curiosity. And the other would be a wit. <laughs> it's, it's, it's its partner. It's a willingness to be completely wrong. <laughs> um 
So narrative therapy helps me to continually be curious, or at least to resist the certainties that would naturally accrue um, as you gain more and more experience. And it and it also gives me a little like, you don't have, you're not the one. How how could you possibly know? Well, like like our our our, our colleague Steve DeGroote would say, what do you know about this person's experience from their perspective? Nothing. Good. That's a great place to start because it means there's a lot that's possible to know. So narrative therapy, I'm, I'm aware that it's not the only, like, I would say postmodern or not modern post-structuralist. There's, there's lots of ways of looking out there that, uh, that are similar and different, but also invite that kind of curiosity. And I owe them, I owe them as cartographers to pushing the knowable limits of curiosity so that I could step into them without having to grind through my own process every single time did that answer anything that you yeah. asked well it, it opened up more space for, okay. for us to to explore because um i would say you're probably one of the most curious people i know i think that you're like a random question generator we can give yeah. like you're you've been known to generate 50 questions on a topic inside of a few minutes like it just it's, it's impressive um how curious you are and when we think about therapy and and I, th- I would like to expand therapy to kind of leadership, helping profession, parenting, mm-hmm. power, right? Using power. Um, and I know that like we can, we can dig into the right use of power a little bit. Mm-hmm. I know as a framework, you know, narrative therapy has informed your work. I know right use of power has informed both of our practice and mm-hmm. our view on, on helping professions and, and the work that we do. Um, but there's actually, there's a set of factors that there's actually a pretty good body of research around, around mm-hmm. what makes for effective therapists and what makes their, like what makes therapy more effective. Um, and I think that it, that was a bit of a turning point for us because there's a tendency, I think, to, for practitioners to try and grab onto the truth, the capital T truth of this works, mm-hmm. right? There's 400 different types of psychotherapy, I think at last count, um, from cognitive behavioral to mindfulness-based stress reduction to you name it, the far corners of you know, psychology, there's lots of niche, mm-hmm. um, practices and uh, the, the temptation I think is to learn the practice really well. And that client that you were describing who wanted that therapist to be in the room with them, not mm-hmm. just the techniques. I think that's probably a common experience. I think a lot of clients probably walk into rooms and get exposed to a technique of some kind or another that somebody has mm-hmm. learned and they're trying to apply. Um, and the reality is, is that when, like when we actually look at the research it has very little to do with the therapy that's being applied to a given circumstance or a given client and everything to do with the therapist. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's called common factors research. And maybe you could just break it down in a, in a nutshell for us. Like what are those, what are the common factors? Cause I believe curiosity is probably in there as one of those factors that distinguishes good there, like successful therapy and successful therapists. But um, what's common factors research and why is it important for everybody to, kind of know of and maybe look at okay well if you want to get first-hand info i would just go to scott miller and uh, and his gang of people the people that he associates with and and there's an abundance there but uh i'll say as a sort of second-hand source of information or we could could you call me a user uh is that a pejorative term um i i've uh, i've i found that that set of language also has been quite emancipating from the unrelenting pressure of being an expert of someone else's experience. It's given permission to just say, wait, um, actually, if you think you're the expert, uh, you might be unintentionally successful, but probably working against yourself from, 
So from what I understand, I, mean, it, I think it's had a few iterations and there's likely some advances in, in common factors that I'm not aware of, uh, um, but I've taken on some of it as, as you have. We, we took on some of this at base camp um, to understand, to answer the question, what is, what is it that we're doing? And also what is it that's working? Um, so the, the research is based on uh, meta-analyses of uh, tremendous amounts of research in psychology about what works and uh, distilling it. And you can just imagine all the mathematics that are quite beyond me. Um, uh, and are they beyond you? No, oh, I have a feeling you know the mathematics. But distilling, yeah, all the stats about it. And they came up with very few things um, and not necessarily the things that you think of. So what we all would think is that psychology and helping works because of the specific ingredients of a therapy, the specifics of a theory and the techniques that go along that become possible once you have a theory. We would all, all think that adherence to uh, um, specific protocols, which is what science is based on. And, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do this, but um, if everybody does this this way, then it will work as though the technique works and not the person. I don't mean that to be a little bit of sassy jargon. It's it's actually pretty close to the point of all of this. So the actual therapeutic factors that drive positive change in therapeutic practice are the first one, goal consensus, which, which it, like, that's a hard one to swallow, I think. It's, it's so obvious, but also so boring. Like, goal consensus, how is that the, that's the least sexy thing? Like, no, who got into being a psychologist to for just agree on goals, goals just to set goals yeah. and agree on them yeah look i got into psychology because i probably wanted some power i wanted a tweed jacket with leather patches i wanted a pipe i wanted to sit back and espouse things i still do some of those things um but goal consensus was it was surprising to find out that that's the re really the thing but when you consider that all of this occurs within the context of the influence we have in our roles as helping professionals i.e power <laughs> <clears throat> it's not surprising that the most important thing is to ask the question, why is this person here? What do they want from me? That has to be the very central part of our work. Other factors that go along with that are relational. That is, they're, they're, they're not owned by the therapist. They are kind of uh, a product of being with, being there with the person, responding to their responses and being very interested and oriented toward their hopes for the work. So stuff like empathy, curiosity, um, uh, uh, being positive. I think being positive um, is possible when we think that when we are reminded that this person is not their problem. You see it though in, in services where we're so steeped in the problem saturated way of looking that it becomes impossible to see the client as anything but the problem. I mean, I've been there with a, a yelling teenager or two um, uh, cursing at me or punching walls. It's, it's really hard not to see this as alarming. Um, but in any case, yeah, those are the moments where we must rescue curiosity. And in order to rescue, we have to remember that there, that something about this isn't as it looks. It isn't the problem in the client so much as maybe them, them responding to the context. That's one of those one hour long conversations. So empathy, um, positive regard, um, Congruence and, and genuineness is another one of those ineffables. Congruence and gen genuineness in the therapist. It's, are you there? Are you living the words? Or, or, or is it just those 
um, dry techniques that are being applied. Those are the common factors, and they together form something called an alliance. So the relationship is all of those things working at the same time. That is, I don't know, like 70% or 80% of the therapeutic outcome right there. Mm-hmm. The rest is, the rest is um, technique. The rest is theory. The rest is adherence to protocols. And not necessarily because those protocols are awesome, but because they calm us down as helping professionals. Who wants to walk into the room and not know what the hell they're doing? They give us something to hold on to. Yeah. When kids are punching walls or yep. swearing at us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, interesting. Um, just a reminder to the viewers, anyone who's who's catching this live, feel free to drop your comments in and your questions. Mm-hmm. If you have any questions that you want to run by Kelly and I, or just Kelly, then by all means, feel free to drop a comment and you know hit the like button if you're enjoying this conversation, because that also helps us reach more people and have a bigger impact in, in the world and get this conversation mm-hmm. out there a little bit more. So um, thanks for tuning in live if you are watching this live. Um, let's talk about power because it's one of those other, when I think about, when I think about our journey, maybe we can maybe rewind the clock a little bit for people to the start of our relationship, which I'm guessing was 2007-ish. When did you start at Basecamp? 2008? Seven? Eight, eight, I think. Yeah, it's been about a dozen years. And so Kelly was a family therapist and clinical supervisor at an addictions treatment program where I was probably starting as the shift shift supervisor when you first started. And then I kind of worked my way up into- No, you were a youth worker. I was, I was a youth worker. Um, mm-hmm. So I did, I did the tour youth worker to supervisor to manager. And uh, so at one point I had to supervise Kelly, supervise <laughs> Kelly. That's uh, as if that's possible. Um, and we, so interesting things. Like I, I look at base camp often as this interesting case study in, in a lot of these ideas that we're talking about around uh, problem identification and, mm-hmm. um, like congruence in the work and common factors. How do you actually, how do you operationalize those into practice? Because they're like theoretically kind of easy to understand and practically challenging to to implement sometimes. And what happened for us. So I'll back up right to when, when we first started, when I first started, I started asking people like, what is addictions? Like, give me a good solid definition of like, what's an addiction so that I can like have something to work from. And I didn't, it was hard to get a straight answer. You know, we get lots of, lots of science, lots of neuroscience, lots of like dopamine circuits and lots of like reward pathways. And it's like, okay, um, what's addictions treatment? Well, it's this, like it, it's what you're doing. It's, you know, three groups a day and one-on-one conversations and school. And I'm like, mm, I don't think like, I think we should be able to like actually define. So I set off on a little journey and then you, you were there shortly thereafter to better understand the work that we did and ask us ourselves the question, is it good work? Like, how are we doing? Do how do we know we're doing good work? And that question was posed to us by uh, Dr. Lee Gillis when he came in to do some research. He asked us that question, and we're like, "Yeah, that's why you're here." Like, we don't actually know, right? We think we do good work. We hope we do. Like, we knock on wood a lot. Like, geez, I hope this sticks. Um, but it's we set off on this journey of trying to figure out like what are those fundamental pieces of treatment that that do a lot of the work or are, are responsible, like you said, for that 70, 80, 90%, 90% of the work, what are the fundamentals and a, a ways into the journey, a few things came across our plate. So one of them was nonviolent communication or compassionate communication by Marshall Rosenberg. And we can talk about that another time, probably. And then shortly thereafter was the right use of power framework, which took into consideration some of the, what we've been talking about tonight around problem identification and responses to power that people might have or powerlessness in their own lives. Um, so I'm going to let you percolate 
a little bit on power in the therapeutic relationship or power at large in the helping professions. Um, and Liam Law actually has a question. He's tuned mm. in and awesome. he's someone that we know well. So I'm going to throw his questions up on the screen and maybe we can respond to those and then we'll dive back in to power. So sure. Liam is curious if you can give us some good language to explore and construct goals with clients. So some client-friendly language maybe. So some, you know, and by uh, give us, he really means share how you broach these conversations and walk with clients to craft goals together to get the goal consensus. Because I imagine uh, that this question for Liam comes from a place of, you know, often this like responsibility on the practitioner or the adult in the room. Sometimes if you're working with kids to like set the clear goals and to like be responsible, that responsibility for mm -hmm. change can sometimes migrate away from the client to the practitioner. And then we end up setting goals that are meaningful for us or meaningful to a funder or meaningful to like somebody who isn't mm -hmm. a client. So yep. um, Liam, let me know if that doesn't capture that or if I'm taking that on a sideways tangent, but Kelly um, language to, or like walking with a client to set meaningful goals. Uh, I want to acknowledge that uh, whatever I say, there will be um, many who can do it better, but we're, it's all up to us as practitioners to kind of, invent that for ourselves. Um, lately, I've been reading a little bit about psychology, I guess, from two non-psychologists. One would be Bradford Keeney, who was involved in um, uh, uh, some family, some ancient family therapy and, um, and uh, uh, cybernetics. Won't go too much into it here, but he shares something with this other author who has nothing to do with psychology. It's actually Keith Johnstone, one of the fellows I think who started the loose moose improv company in Calgary. Both of these um, people are th think and, and position imp improvisation as the discipline in which something new can emerge. And to some extent, both, people in their own disciplines say that we, it's not so much about pr taking on a specific practice or structure that will guide a person toward these improvisations of new living. Um, it's kind of like not practicing or at least suspending ourselves or judgment enough for something else to come through. So I don't have a specific practice, but when I do have a specific practice about getting to goals, it never works because it's too hasty. Now, we're often in systems that require us to do paperwork in order to name the, name the problem, name the goal right away. Now, it's like, well, you mentioned uh, NVC. It's like doing the observe, observation of what's wrong and then getting right to the action. And in between is this relational space in which anything becomes possible. When you remove the white stuff out of the center of the Oreo, all you have is two brittle biscuits. So... I would say that the practice is to stuff more white stuff in the Oreo, more delicious things. And that means it could, I mean, there, there are brief ways to do this, but listening uh, for things that for me aren't problems. So I'm listening uh, to people's stories of problems, perhaps. I'm being curious about things that aren't problems, but I'm listening for values. I'm listening for needs and values, and I'm listening for strengths. And on the basis of that, um, it becomes possible to start asking 
what's interesting to do, what's possible to do, what is an experiment a person might like to undertake, what's something you want to move forward. I might use the word goal, but goal evokes for me like hockey-related traumas, so I tend not to use the word goal. <laughs> I was going to jump right in because I think we actually took goals out of the vocabulary at some point doing case planning with, mm-hmm. and we probably took case out of the everything too, <laughs> right? Like we probably like dismantled some of the the common language around it. And I think we did start calling it experiments and yep. that type of language. I think, I think one thing that happens is goals get set and we then it's a pass or fail. It's like the new year's resolution is just one more chance for people to fail at something is to set goals, right. And hold them really tightly versus trying like establishing an experiment. I'm going to try this thing. And like you say, maybe, maybe it's in a bit of improv. Maybe it's a new thing that I've never tried before, um, mm-hmm. but I'm going to treat it as an experiment and I'm going to shorten up the, the cycle a little bit between and get, between getting feedback on that experiment to see if it's closer to or further away from who I want mm-hmm. to be or how I want to be in this relationship. So um, yeah, so I, that was just a total, I remember actually us like scrubbing case planning of all the, all words that said case because that described the type of problems that we were after and that was that didn't fit for us um and lots of times where we'd sit around and say yeah setting goals sucks like setting goals is terrible and why why is goal setting bad i think i've seen you run groups with with teenagers where it's like a, a whiteboard and it's like all the ways in which setting goals sucks because you get held accountable to them by other people they get used as leverage to get you to do things that maybe you don't want to do like there's lots of things around that so i'm an advocate to reframe goal setting into something that's a bit more user-friendly mm-hmm. it's it's absolutely a cutting-edge question because our tendencies are to to engage despite maybe despite our efforts sometimes um to engage in interpretation which further traps people in problem languages and further entrances them with uh, very narrow bandwidth of their experience, the problem bandwidth. Um, when, if we're want, like if we're wanting, well, those saying you uh, drive where you steer, we unintentionally steer people right back into the same shit that they're experiencing by trying to craft perfect um, uh, interventions, uh, even experiments that have to do with problems. So it could be possible to, to do lots of interventions and goals based on problems. But what I've found, and perhaps Liam, you found this too, I don't know. Uh, certainly lots of people will have found this. It's not a, a, something I've created. But when we're somehow evocative of unexpected performances of self that lie further afield than the problem, lots of things come possible. I mean, I just read an anecdote where a fellow in Czechoslovakia, I think, had been uh, just underneath depression for I don't know, a decade. Well, um, within an hour, he had been so thoroughly listened to and acknowledged in certain parts of his, uh, his life that the, he was not convinced, but introduced to the notion that perhaps collecting bird feathers and building birdhouses to house the feathers would be an antidote. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy. Um, it's not an antidote to depression, but the type of person who builds a birdhouse for found bird feathers is now looking for something in his life and wanting to do something with those things that he finds. And that's a performance of self that fully is fully antidepressant for that person in their lives at that time. 
And so I'm aiming that direction. I want to be listening to a person's life and get them excited about a possibility so much that they would want to perform and experiment that thing and then take those results back and give feedback on the process and sort of acknowledge it in that rhythmic acknowledgement of what's working and moving forward grows the thing. What we focus on grows in our awareness. It grows in our intentions. It grows in our actions. It grows in our lives. So, I mean, I'm totally shoplifting these ideas from lots of people. And perhaps uh, some of the people who are listening are recognizing them in their own, their own language and their own practice and their own history. Well, we're all shoplifting from somewhere, right? From words we've heard and books we've read and, and mm-hmm. teachers that we've had in the past and clients that we've had in the past. You know, sometimes our clients are, well, certainly been my best teachers, right? The, the moments, mm-hmm. the power struggles, the the wins and the losses um, in, with clients is, you know, given more insight into the practice than lots of books and lots of trainings that I've certainly been to. Um, let's, you mentioned a few things in there. You mentioned the word feedback a couple mm-hmm. of times. And I'd love to dig into feedback informed practice. That's which is a pretty big, broad bucket. Um, but what, like, what is it from your perspective, feedback informed practice and how is it, how is it helpful? What, like a little bit of what is it, you know, there's lots of probably different ways that it shows up in different sizes of feedback, you know, as an administrator and as a, as a leader of programs, I look at feedback, you know, maybe at a system level, but there's feedback happening within a relationship with with a client or with our kids like i get feedback from my kids all the time because i'm good so i'm not so good um how do we incorporate feedback into practice in a more meaningful way and what are some of the well, barriers wow um okay in a no nutshell biggie. no biggie so i'll go back to um to narrative for a second reading narrative it became apparent to me and i've never read this in narrative, I've never read this really anywhere, um, but it seemed to me that therapy, narrative therapy particularly, was uh, ethical. Um, it it was what became possible and some and even necessary um, if you were interested in ethics, if you're interested in behaving ethically, which started percolating some ideas about what problems could be uh, problems. I mean, hypothetically, and, and not, and, and really like in an exaggerated fashion, I would say problems in some sense are the results of being treated unethically. But of course, lots of problems happen when we're not treated by anybody. Um, but in any case, it's an interesting, it was an interesting territory to sit in for a while. And uh, that was, uh, um, that was just prior to, I think, uh, to someone bringing the right use of power to us and just giving us a bit of training in it now. Mm-hmm. Those two ideas marry really well because right use of power actually is um, is training in ethics, but it also seemed to uh, provide a way of describing problems in a non-pathologizing fashion that was actually also very, very accurate to people's lived experience. So right use of power and narrative have this sort of ethicalness about them um, that helped in the definition of problems and the rendering of responses that might help. One so but one of the most one of the other necessary components that came forward once we said this is important to us was if we want to behave ethically, we can no longer abide by the unexamined assumption that we know what's best and even that we would know what was good or bad about that last session. E- to even say, I don't even really know if it was any use at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it became necessary to get some kind of feedback because how could we know? 
How could we know whether our work was doing any good at all? It seemed like an ethical stance to say the most important perspective in this dyad, in this therapeutic environment is the clients. And so, or the person served or the youth. Some people have allergies to the word client or the word patient or the, in any case, the people that we're working with. Um, and I've been, I am one of those people. Um, is, is to simply have frameworks for gathering feedback and uh, making it visible and privileging that in the evaluation of program, the evaluation of that moment, the evaluation of that hour, the evaluation of that week, the evaluation of the services, the evaluation of the agency, all of that. That's feedback informed practice. It's to place something at the center, that old um, saying that circulates around so many of these agencies, that strength-based approach, a client-centered approach, well, what exactly is being centered? If it's not the client's experience, then we're probably centering something about our expert experience. And that is a sign of an unethical practice. So all of these pieces started to fit together as necessary outcomes once we started to adopt a few, a few basic principles, one of which was right use of power. Mm-hmm. I, I, th- I think I steered toward pieces of your question, in any case, Jeff, and hopefully maybe something that Liam had asked. Yeah, no, I think it's it's all good. It's all interesting. And we're, we're hitting some of the territory that I was hoping for tonight, which is the the fundamental kind of assumptions that underlie the work or underpin the work. And I love that you brought up some of the buzzwords, you know, strengths, fo- strengths focused and client centered and family based and, you know, pick mm-hmm. your inserts, you know, latest buzzword. Um, but without actually a critical examination of it, looking at it very carefully. And asking ourselves the question, you know, back to, you know, Steve DeGroote's question, what do we know about this from their perspective, right? Most organizations that I work with now, and certainly we've worked together with organizations that don't actually have have any idea, right? What the experience Mm -hmm. is, right? Or they have a bunch of anecdotes, right? Most of us have anecdotes about what the experience is like. And we've probably got some good anecdotes and we've got some shitty anecdotes of times Mm -hmm. when services went well and times when services didn't go well and too often. And I've certainly been guilty of this and, and various you know lee and we've probably had these conversations in the back office before it's like it's it's easy as practitioners to blame clients for their own failings right they come into treatment and they fail treatment right because their needs aren't being met or they're like not able to like meaningfully connect with the organization or the team and we'll blame them and say they're just not treatment ready that was that was pervasive language i would say mm-hmm. for the first couple of years when you and i were working at, at base camp is treatment readiness was a conversation and it's like when you start to actually unpack that a little bit, it's actually like, we're not ready to adjust. We're not ready to expand the scope of what's possible with clients. We've actually narrowed the definition of our services quite, quite tight. Right. And if somebody doesn't fit it, we just blame them and we'll call it addiction and they're just not ready Mm -hmm. for treatment. Right. Or we'll call it depression resistant treatment or um, treatment resistant depression, which should be the other way around. Right. It's that we've narrowed our scope of practice. We've narrowed our expectations and our assumptions of what's possible and what we're willing to to do and where we're willing to meet people to a point where a lot of programs don't actually work for anybody, right? Like they've they've been kind of, you know, the one size fits all rarely fits that many people on, on the spectrum. <laughs> and so um, you and I were actually working with a, a school not that a couple of years ago and one of the vice principals said something that stuck with me and she said we wanted to build a one-size-fits-one approach here with our students 
And that's, mm-hmm. that really resonated because that's what we were trying to do at Basecamp. And that's a lot of the work that, you know, both of us, I think are still pursuing in a lot of ways with our clients and, and the people that we work with. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you can respond to any of that, or we can, we can shift gears. You can ask me some questions. I know you maybe had a few oh. queued up that, uh, you were interested in. We can invite more questions from the audience. Thank you, Liam, for that. And a reminder that, you know, comments and questions are great. They're a fun way for us to I can see see what you're interested in and respond to that. So don't well, hesitate. Might, might I, I just want to add one final piece in the utility of taking on a feedback-informed practice. Um, and that is to stop the, or to disembark, we'll say, from the endless train ride of desire for best practice, which... I don't want to ruffle feathers, um, but that's an, end, feathers. that's an endless train and, and it doesn't have a destination. It's just, it's more of the same. And in fact, best practice, uh, the notion can be used against people to stifle innovation and to stop conversation because some people will say that they possess best practice um, probably for very good reasons. The systems need to have land on something and then they, reify these practices by saying that they're best practice but of course they're sometimes unexamined practices that exert unhelpful influence um so feedback informed approach allows a shift in conversation from evidence-based practice to practice-based evidence which is, seems like just a word salad or a, maybe an, a distinction that doesn't make a difference but it does make a difference because we are beholden to the experts and the, we're beholden to that bookshelf uh, um, on Amazon. We're beholden to the, the podcasts, sorry, Jeff, and the, uh, the workshops to tell us what that evidence base is so that we can just take it on and, and please do it, which further removes us from the room and places the practice. It's like pra- practice-centered practice. Does that make sense? Okay, so it allows us to, to at least hold it loosely. Like, it's good that science is asking questions about uh, therapy. It's really good to be held accountable. But at some point, we can also say we know, we know a lot. And, uh, and part of our knowledge, or a large part of our knowledge, because of common factors, we can say this pretty definitively, part of what we know about what works in therapy is, part, is the relationships that we're, con- we're constructing, that we're, uh, um, we're involved in. And so if we start to um, capture feedback data uh, to, to get to get feedback about our our local um, our local practice, we can start to make claims about and shift our practice to ever better. So we don't have to be beholden. We always we don't always have to have something in our shopping cart in order to smuggle it into our practice. We can just practice also what we do, um, practice based evidence, and that allows us to cultivate uh, local wisdom rather than just endless um, yearning in the horizon. So I would say that's the piece that I wanted to add in there, Jeff. Yeah, no, I think it's 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 an essential component of of any any of everything human like where two humans are coming together to do work and there's a power dynamic there that we risk the person in the up power the person with the power becoming disconnected or detached from the impacts that they're having on the other person. So, you know, I see it in my parenting, right? As I will have an, an unintended impact on my kids. And if I'm not attuned to the impact that that's going to fester and it's going to show up in different ways, or it's going to become a part of them and who they are, right? It's going to get inside of the relationship, right? And I can't fix something if I'm not aware of it. And the same thing happens in our education systems. The same thing happens anywhere where there's a power dynamic. 
there's a, a very real risk that up power, we'll call it up power, um, has no idea what their impacts are. And they, and we make assumptions. And in the lack of evidence to the contrary, we'll just assume that we're doing good work, right? Mm-hmm. So that's when why that question, when it was posed to us as a treatment program, how do you know you do great work? And we were probably like, oh shit, like we've got some stories. We've got some stories about sitting around some campfires and some phone calls three months after treatment of you know people whose lives were back on track. And we had lots of anecdotes, but we didn't have evidence. We certainly didn't have data and we couldn't lay claims to it's because of this part of the program. It's because of these factors, these things that we're actually doing. And I think most treatment programs and a lot of the work that you and I are both doing right now is helping treatment programs get get that those systems in place so that they don't have to rely on anecdotes mm-hmm. of success mm-hmm. so that we can have a steady stream of reliable feedback coming into the system so that we can both a know we're doing good work if we are and b if we're not we can fix it right mm-hmm. we can adjust our practice um so feedback informed you know leader from as leaders as parents as teachers as helping professionals as psychologists certainly i think it's um it's useful across the spectrum um yeah so that's my a little rant on feedback informed and why everybody should be doing it. Um, Cause it makes a difference and it makes the work easier, right? It decenters us as experts, you know, lots of, lots of time is spent by helping professionals trying to figure out what to do next. Mm-hmm. Right? When we could probably just be asking our clients, like, what do you need and what's most important to you and what's working in, in this relationship? Well, and listening though, Jeff, because I'm aware that a lot of people who come to see me don't ha- necessarily have answers to those questions. So it involves some, it involves curiosity and then listening for the molecules sometimes of the very things that you're talking about. Yeah. I, I did have a question for you, actually. And it's sort of been sort of lingering. I don't know if you have time to do that right now. I noticed that we're 101 right now. It, and that was, um, does Jeff see psychology in his work? Do I see psychology in my work? Yeah. I know that you have lots of different limbs to your, to the work that you're, you're doing with lots of different people and, uh, or whether even you construe it that way. Cause it seems to me that you, you embody lots of the things that I aspire to. That's an interesting question. I think, um, well, I think a lot of what I hope to embody are things that, you know, filled the air and filled the the efforts that, that we shared in those truck rides and those late night back office conversations and trying to write notes on the day and what happened and trying to pick up a mindset. And so, you know, a, a, a helping professional mindset, I think is, is pretty hardwired into me at this point. So it's hard for me to distinguish and say, and that's probably been the biggest realization post after leaving a treatment program and leaving base camp a couple of years ago and doing more work at systems levels, doing more work with leaders, doing work across the sectors. So not just being steeped in because that you're at risk in any, anytime you get stuck in a system, you start to adopt that mindset, right? And that worldview. And so addiction and mental health becomes everything. So it's been helpful for me to see if some of these ideas resonate in other places, right? Because I certainly saw them resonate with a team of helping professionals and and counselors in in addiction treatment but they're equally as helpful equally as effective in like boardrooms and corporate corporate calgary right or in the education systems and so some of the fundamentals i think of psychology are certainly present in my practice and certainly a lot of the things that we talk about when it comes to you know locating problems and identifying them and describing them 
and how we do that and how much power and potential there is there to get it wrong or get it right. Right. When we, as leaders, you know, say John's the problem and he's not pulling his weight and he's not motivated. It's like, slow that down a little bit. I'm not sure that's true. Right. Unless John's telling us that and, you know, back to what do we know? Nothing. Let's start there. So curiosity, like common factors. I'm often talking with leaders because those common factors, goal consensus, curiosity, empathy, non-judgment, like those are the factors that good leaders embody. No different than good therapists. And the point of those is to build trust, right? And so I, I talk about, you know, trust building. Who do we trust the most in society, right? Like it's hard, like psychology, like psychologists probably get a depth of understanding of people get a level of honesty and vulnerability that not a lot of other relationships have. Yeah, right? that's true. You've been on the receiving end of stuff that some people have never told anybody else and may never tell anybody else in their life. And so what is it about that relationship and the dynamics and the factors that go into that and <laughs> the expectations and the goals? Like it's, it, there's a little cluster of things that make that relationship a very high trust relationship potentially. Right. And I'd say a lot of that is an artifact of the constructive therapist. Like if you're, going to see your dentist you wouldn't have the expectation that he would ask you a hard question so it's actually a gift to me i think i think sure. I, and people in other roles might have to be more like clever or not clever but have to do a little bit more that because i could just sit on my feather cushion and ask a question <laughs> a personal question but a boss might not be able to do that sure you're, and you're, you're, under, you're sure and you're underselling yourself because you've had clients that have come to you after they've been to other therapists and talked about things they wouldn't have talked about with that other therapist. So it's not just the positional authority. Like it's not just the role that you inhabit. It's how you inhabit that role. And that's what common factors research tells us, right? You can be a shitty therapist and not ever hear the truth from your clients because they don't want to give it to you. Right. Or they don't feel safe enough to give it to you. Like whatever the barrier is there. So yes, you probably, you might have an edge just because the expectations of that relationship are set a certain way that you go mm-hmm. to therapy to talk about these things. Um, but I think that there's also characteristics of great therapists that are portable to great parenting, to great leadership, to great teaching, to hmm. being just a great human, um, whether it's a friend or whatever. So, um, so if your question was, do I see psychology in my work? I see that lobe of psychology. I see that aspect. I see various pieces in my work all over the place, feedback informed, um, a nonviolent approach, which isn't necessarily therapy, even though Rosenberg was a therapist, it's, you know, it's a communications framework. Um, that's really helpful. So, um, well, let me interject there. I would, so here's another problem definition that, that I, that it sits alongside the one I offered earlier that, um, harm comes from violence. And so an antidote to harm is nonviolence. So again, it doesn't paint the bigger picture, but I would say that, um, take, taking into account the idea of violence helps us look at the work that we do to cultivate uh, um, a better approach through nonviolence. So I'd say, yeah, that is therapeutic, actually, um, whether or not we're acting as a therapist or not. So actually, so it doesn't surprise me that, that you're finding that useful, because now, now that I think about it, it's a bit of a silly question. Do you see psychology in your work? You're working with people. I'm working with people. It's not like there are two sets of species that we're working with. Um, what appeals to a person in one location is, is a desire to be whole accepted listened to goal consented with <laughs> etc um so leaders therapists parents teachers dentists i didn't want to disparage dentists there. i don't know why i disparage dentists all well of you a know sudden. what quick story time we've got time for a quick story and then we'll probably have to wrap it up because it's uh 
that's the, the downside of a show at 8.30 at night is it gets late quick. So and I don't want to keep people, I don't want to keep you too long. Um, I know you've got young kids and who could get up at any hour of the, of the early morning. So mm-hmm. dentists, actually the phobia of dentists, like a lot of people have fear of dentists, right? Anxiety around going to the dentist. And my oldest son mm-hmm. certainly did. And when I look at the experience that he was having at the dentist office, it was no wonder. Right? There wasn't a lot of goal consensus in collaboration. There wasn't a lot of empathy and curiosity. There wasn't, it was, you know, all of those pieces that you say, those like those fundamentals were missing for him. And we started to go down the track of, well, he's got a, like a dentist anxiety thing. So we're going to work with him, the five-year-old or the six-year-old to better cope with the, this anxiety of going to the dentist, right? Like crazy. Mm-hmm. So then I go with him one day and I see him get like almost strapped into a chair, but like pinned down and held down. The dentist shows up in his mask, mumbling, doesn't introduce himself, sticks his finger in her mouth, sticks a tool in and starts digging around. And the kid like tears streaming down my son's face. And I was like, this is not a child Mm -hmm. problem. This is a dentist problem. Like this is somebody who's unaware of the power they have and the impact they're having. And you're like a pediatric dentist. I was like blown away. And so long story short, we went to a different dentist and that dentist, we walk in the door and the first thing he does is make a balloon animal, like blows up a balloon, makes a balloon animal, has a conversation, sits down in the chair, introduces himself, takes pictures, takes a selfie with the camera that goes in your mouth, but like gives the controls, lets my kid like play with the tools, like really does a good job of um, putting him at ease. Like all of those common factors were like really clearly laid out and control was given to the five-year-old or the six-year-old at this point to be in the driver's seat. So there's, so jokingly you say dentist as you know, but it's actually, it's a pretty real thing. Like anywhere, I think anywhere that we show up and we have power in relationship with people, the power to have an impact, we need to take responsibility for that. And we need to examine it and, and recognize the signs and symptoms of feedback for when we're not doing it well. Cause that five-year-old's not filling out a satisfaction survey and saying, you know, this is a shitty experience for me, but they're crying in the chair. Mm-hmm. Right. And if that's the like ongoing experience for that dentist or that, like not to pick on that dentist, I won't name any names, but that's, that's a piece I think that that's portable from psychology that we can take into the human experience at large. Um, and that's, that's power in a nutshell. And that's the, the, the reason this show is called powerful is to examine issues of power, to talk about power and how it shows up in relationship. Because for me, that's probably been the most portable or the most kind of foundational mm-hmm. set of assumptions, set of ideas around the work of, of being in relationship with people that has stuck with me and that I've seen has the most portability into my own practice. Mm-hmm. Um, then that's how I usually judge practice is, is this useful for me as a human being in my relationships outside of this narrow slice of working in an addictions treatment program? And if it is, I give it a little bit more weight and, uh, and think about it and try and practice it a little bit more. Yeah. Great story. Great well, story. It's a story. Um, and there's probably, I'm not the only one that has them. I think we all have lots of stories of, of mm-hmm. power and impact and intentions and all those pieces. And that's probably a conversation for another day. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, so I thank you very much for jumping on to the live stream with Jeff, the uh, COVID edition, I guess. I don't know. It's COVID's no longer a, a reason to do things, but um, the live show is actually just an excuse for me to get into a good habit of having interesting conversations with fascinating people. And you're certainly one of them. And this was certainly an interesting conversation. So um, thank you so much for joining me. 
and thank you, have a wonderful rest of your evening and to you everybody too. who tuned in live thank you so much for being here and if you're listening to this after the fact i hope you enjoy it and you can always check out jeffcoulard.com slash powerful for all of the episodes so we'll get this video and audio up in the next week or two awesome thanks kelly thank you <laughs>